Uh, our first session this morning as we transition to our message to start off with on dispensationalism and its importance is going to be by uh, Dr. J.B. Hickson. J.B. and I have been friends for many years. Uh, when I was a pastor in Milwaukee, he was pastoring in uh, Texas at a, another Bible church, and he's a dear friend. I count him very faithful to the Word of God, and certainly on this subject, when it comes to hermeneutics and dispensationalism, he's right at the top as far as people who I would trust to teach on this subject. So with that introduction, J.B., why don't you come on up and lead us off here? Well, it's great to, uh, great to be here, been coming here for, well, let's see, there we go, been coming here for, I think it's 15 years, uh, and I always enjoy uh, seeing friends that I haven't seen uh, for a while, and, and, uh, and just uh, great to be here. You know, I was looking back through my notes, um, and 10 years ago at this conference, we uh, talked about dispensationalism, and I uh, shared a message uh, on the building blocks of dispensationalism, and I, you know, a lot's changed in in the ten years since then. Uh, for one thing, you guys have all gotten a lot older, uh, so that's uh, that's one thing. But also, ten years ago, I mentioned uh, a few notable figures in dispensationalism, famous dispensationalists, godly men, scholars, men of outstanding reputation, uh, such as uh, Roger Staubach and Troy Aikman and Emmett Smith. And Tom Landry. That was 10 years ago. And, you know, 10 years later, we can add a few more names to that list, like Dak Prescott and Zeke and Tony Pollard and Micah Parsons. But um, every time I come to Duluth, I always like to kind of take a look at how uh, the Vikings are doing. You know, the Cowboys are having an outstanding year, despite Dak Prescott being injured. They're 3-1. and one. And I was looking last night at the uh, Vikings, and um, I, I kind of was curious because, interestingly, someone gave me uh, two tickets to Sunday's game against the Bears in Minnesota, down there in Minneapolis. And uh, I don't know how well they're doing, but I can get a clue from something that happened this morning. I went to get coffee, and I don't know what I was thinking, but I left those two tickets on the front seat of my rental car. And when I came back out, someone had smashed in the window of my rental car and uh, left two more tickets. So I don't know what that, <laughs> what that really, what that says. <laughs> I'm not sure how to take that, but apparently the Vikings are not, not having uh, that great of a year. But, uh, well, I, I'm sure that in a, in a group of uh, pastors, especially uh, dispensational pastors, uh, that we understand that uh, dispensationalism is first and foremost a hermeneutic. Uh, in other words, the theological viewpoints that are associated with dispensational theology flow from our literal grammatical, historical uh, hermeneutic. And in my life and in my journey, I, I was blessed to go to Dallas Seminary, but I was very young when I went there, right out of college. Uh, this was 32 years ago. And I don't really feel like I was mature enough, uh, both just in life and in my faith, to really appreciate the value uh, of that time. And it wasn't until the Lord opened the door for me to go to Baptist Bible Seminary and sit under Dr. Mike Stallard that I really began to grow and, and appreciate and, and really crystallize in my mind the, the importance of dispensational theology. Not that Dallas didn't have its effect, it absolutely uh, did, but uh, I really owe a huge debt of gratitude to my time at Baptist Bible Seminary, and especially Dr. Steller, who'll be speaking right after this. So um, I always like to mention, and I've, we've shared the platform many times at different, uh, in different venues, but anything I say that you find uh, to be in disagreement with, just blame it on Mike, because everything I learned pretty much, uh, pretty much came from him. But I'm sure he's going to be talking about some of the same things that I'm mentioning, but before we can get into the hermeneutics of it all, because as the title of, uh, of this particular session at the conference indicates, the differences do start with hermeneutics, we need to sort of define some things, and I want to start with the key tenets of dispensationalism and use uh, Ryrie's sine qua non of dispensationalism. And uh, that, of course, begins with consistent literal interpretation. Secondly, the, the distinction between God's program for Israel and God's program for the church. And then thirdly, the doxological purpose of God uh, in human history. And I think for our purposes, the key that we want to focus in on here is the idea of consistent literal interpretation. You know, most Bible teachers uh, today, even non-dispensationalists, claim to 
espouse a literal interpretation. It wasn't always that way. I can remember uh, 32 years ago sitting under Dr. Walbert in his Doctrine of the Rapture class and hearing him talk about O.T. Alice uh, you know, the, from uh, Princeton and Westminster uh, and talking about him in class and pointing out how he openly admitted to a non-literal approach at times, census plenior in this sort of allegorical approach to Scripture. But today, uh, literal interpretation has really become so broadly defined that just about every major, major Bible teacher and theologian wears that label or considers himself to be within the tent of literal interpretation. And sometimes even non-dispensationists, of course, do interpret the Bible literally. They're consistent in their literal uh, interpretation. But the truth is, uh, we too sometimes are inconsistent in handling the Bible correctly in its literal, grammatical, historical approach. In fact, um, anytime we arrive at an incorrect conclusion, we can assume that it, it's based on our improper hermeneutic. It always flows from uh, hermeneutics. And so, uh, but dispensationalists have been historically, uh, going back 100 years, you know, guilty of uh, not consistently handling the Bible uh, literally. I'm going to talk more about that in a moment, but we could think of people like F.W. Grant and the numeric Bible. Uh, we, we've been guilty of allegorizing, uh, but the key here is consistent literal interpretation. So let's start by defining literal interpretation. This comes from Paul Enns. Literal interpretation means the words and sentences of Scripture are understood in their normal meaning. The ways that words are uh, understood in normal everyday communication. It's a literal or normal meaning of words that is the basis of communication. So we often describe this as the plain sense or the straightforward meaning of the word, the normal sense uh, of the word. So that's what we mean by literal interpretation. And we believe in the literal, grammatical, historical approach to Scripture, that is taking into account the what, the authorial intent, the grammar and syntax, the historical setting, the way words were used in that particular uh, context and era. But, you know, this is a tough assignment. How, how do you tell a room full of pastors, especially esteemed pastors like, like, that, that come to the Duluth Conference, dispensational pastors uh, who make their living preaching and teaching the Word of God, how do you tell a room full of pastors like that how to interpret the Bible? I mean, that's a that's a tall order, um, and it's intimidating. I, I always, I was telling someone before we started, I always get intimidated coming to the DBC conference. I don't know why, but it's a, this is a great group, and, and I just feel like I ought to be sitting out there soaking up everything everybody else is having uh, to say, and I certainly will be. But, uh, you know, obviously we know how to interpret the Bible. I hope we do. Um, but do we always employ our hermeneutic accurately and consistently. So I decided to come at this from another angle. Uh, since we know how to interpret the Bible, I want us to talk about how to misinterpret the Bible uh, and give you some common mistakes, I think, that we all make. And I want to begin by looking at a text I know we're all familiar with, especially in the context of hermeneutics. But if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 8, it sort of gives us a historical narrative uh, basis or example of this literal grammatical hermeneutic, and, and it kind of validates that this approach to handling the Scripture is uh, the best approach. So we're going back now to the year 445 B.C., uh, Nehemiah uh, rebuilding the walls, and after the project is complete, we get to uh, chapter 8, and let's uh, pick it up here in verse uh, 2, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Verse 4, So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose, and that's the first uh, re reference historically to what we would call a pulpit. Uh, he stood on a platform of wood which had been made for that purpose, and beside him uh, stood all of these people. Then you get to verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. 
And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And then all the people answered, Amen, Amen. So this is also the first historical reference to the Baptist church. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting their hands. Wait, so this is the first reference to the first charismatic church, I guess I should have said. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord God with their faces to the ground. Skip down to verse 8. So they read distinctly from the law, from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand what they were reading. I mean, really, that's what each of us, if you're a pastor or a teacher, that's what we do when we get in the pulpit, is it not? We want to read the Word of God, and then we want to do our best to give the sense and help people understand uh, the reading. Uh, it's, you know, we don't get uh, spiritual growth by osmosis. We have to read the Word of God. It starts with the Word of God, but we have to understand it, right? Uh, I'm convinced uh, in the model that we teach in our ministry and in our church that obviously sanctification is this, is, comes by faith, the same way we uh, accomplish justification by faith. Uh, but you don't trust what you don't know, and you don't know what you don't study. So really, studying the Word of God is critical. Uh, it helps us uh, become equipped for every good work. Um, we know uh, Paul said in his last epistle uh, to Timothy that he needs to uh, be diligent to present himself approved to God, a worker does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we want to correctly handle uh, the word of God. But the more we know God, the more we'll trust God. And the more we trust God, the more we'll obey God. It's the no trust, obey model. In fact, all sin comes down really to a lack of faith. When we choose to follow the flesh and not to walk in the spirit, we're essentially saying, I'm trusting myself more than I'm trusting God. And we don't trust people we don't know, right? We trust those we know. So that's why Bible study is so fundamental, and that's why expository preaching and teaching is so crucial, and that's why God's divine design in the local church today is to help people study the Word of God. You know, you see um, all kinds of references in the pastoral epistles to the importance of doctrine. You know, that's become a bad word in our culture today. You know, doctrine, uh, uh, many postmodern uh, theologians would say is divisive and mean and unloving. Uh, we live in a day when people like to draw circles of inclusion rather than lines of distinction. Uh, but the Bible does give us everything we need for life and godliness. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is how we get to know God. And the more we know God, the more we'll trust God. And the more we trust God, the more we'll obey God. And that's really uh, what it comes down to, that old hymn, Trust and obey. Uh, another one of my professors uh, who's with the Lord now, Dwight Pentecost, put it this way, there's no higher activity in which the mind may be engaged than the pursuit of the knowledge of God. Now, why is it that people who agree on the authority of God's Word, who agree that the Bible is the infallible Word of God, that it's inerrant, that it's the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices, still sometimes come up with different interpretations of certain passages. In fact, uh, even among uh, you know, uh, scholars, there's, there's major differences, right? I mean, even, you know, say, covenant guys or amillennialists, people like that, they value the Word of God. They're not disparaging the Word of God. They, like us, recognize that this is God's infallible Word, but yet they come away with different interpretations. And the problem with that is in this day and age, that leads people, the average person, to say, well, nobody really agrees on it, so why bother to study it? Um, but as we're going to see this morning, uh, obviously we can arrive at the one singular meaning, the correct meaning. And the fact that people differ on certain viewpoints doesn't mean there's not one singular meaning. Um, and so when we you know, talk to people from a different theological framework, non-dispensationalist, we need to be careful not to uh, lump them together with liberals or those that, that abandon the authority of God's Word. We need to be gracious. I did a message years ago called Defending Grace Graciously because, frankly, sometimes dispensational grace folks can be the most ungracious in defending grace. Um, 
And, and so you know, sometimes when we come a, a, away with different interpretations, it's not so much about an attack on the Bible, it's just about mishandling it. But for our purposes, because we, we all kind of understand the, the, the theological and hermeneutical errors that lead people to you know, say the mid-trib view or the post-trib view or you know, lordship salvation and some of those erroneous uh, perspectives. And we're going to talk about some of those in this conference. But, but what I want to focus on is even among those in our camp, we sometimes have disagreements. Now, some of those are areas where the Bible is not uh, always crystal clear, where we have to be open and hold our views with a degree of humility and recognize, you know, this is my understanding, but, you know, the, the text itself... Uh, lends itself to different possibilities. And so, but still, even on clear issues, why is it that dispensationalists, even in this room, uh, we could pick an, any number of uh, passages of Scripture or theological issues, and we could go around the room, we'd find some differences. Why is that? Well, uh, certainly not because God uh, intentionally creates confusion and comes up with multiple views of the same passage. It's because we're not being consistent in our hermeneutic. Uh, if we were consistent, we would come at the same, uh, come to the same conclusion. So I've tried to diagram this out, um, kind of showing what misinterpretation looks like, how does it creep in, and then I want to kind of walk us through how uh, some common uh, careless errors that we make. But in the big picture, it starts with the Word of God, and we want to take the Bible and we want to go from the Bible, what it says, all the way to an accurate interpretation. That's the goal. Start with what does it say, just like we read in Nehemiah, and we want to understand it accurately. Go from what it says to what it means, if you will. Along the way, broadly speaking, there are two steps. This is essentially Bible study, uh, and it starts with your hermeneutic, of course, and then it, it goes on to the second step, which is, cross-referencing. And to the extent that we're able to, to start with a proper method, literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutics, and uh, link passages correctly, and there, is, there, there are some uh, sort of regulating principles for cross-referencing, but to the extent that we're able to do that consistently and accurately, we're going to come up with the correct interpretation. Uh, certainly not the methodology that's flawed. When we come up with a false interpretation, it's the employment of the method, right? Uh, so, but the further we get from this process, the more incorrect our interpretation becomes. So let's say, for example, we do practice literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutics. We have the proper method, but we're linking passages together that really don't go together. Uh, in fact, this is really the most common place that error in interpretation creeps in, is at the synthesis level. I'm going to give you some examples of that in a moment, but... Uh, if we have weak cross-referencing, we're going to come up with an inconsistent interpretation. Sometimes we'll arrive at the right spot, sometimes we won't. The further we drift, and this is just a continuum, but uh, let's say we start with an improper method. Maybe we start with an allegorical method to begin with, and we couple that with weak cross-referencing. Then we're almost certain to come up with an incorrect interpretation. Or, as is the case with most postmodern hermeneutics today, if we have a terrible method of interpretation, what I call the TBN method, um, and we couple that with awful cross-referencing, well then we are in danger of coming up with a heretical interpretation. So it really comes down to, at least for our purposes, not uh, arriving at the proper method. I hope by now you recognize that there's really only one proper method, and it's the same method that's used for interpreting any words or language, whether written or spoken, and that is the literal, grammatical, historical. Uh, as I gave in the Paul Enns definition, it's the, the way in which words are intended to be understood. So it's not so much arriving at the proper method, it's consistently employing that method as we come to the text. And so uh, one example, uh, and I'll try to give some of these as we go through, but I taught hermeneutics for 12 years at the college and graduate levels, and so I've seen quite a bit of, uh, of examples of improper uh, cross-referencing, but I remember one student turned in a paper that uh, looked at uh, Acts uh, 28, I think it's verse uh, 2, let me get there, yeah, Acts 22, uh, the island of Malta, verse 2 says, and the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome, because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. 
Now, I don't know if you realize this, because you might not be as smart as this one student that I had, but uh, that word fire there links back to Acts 2 and is a reference to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's ministry on the island of Malta. See, that's weak cross-referencing, right? Uh, by the way, we do that more often than you think. Um, a lot of times when people see fire, they'll automatically link it to hell, right? Uh, we see that with uh, the vine and the branches and uh, um, uh, I think um, John 15, for example. Uh, so that's where error most often creeps in. But what I'd like to do is just as a reminder, this is nothing profound. Certainly any one of you sitting out there could have given this presentation, but uh, I feel like it's a helpful reminder for us all to be consistent and where are the places where we might uh, be susceptible to error. So seven careless errors. The first is the failure to acknowledge original intent. Uh, you know, sometimes we're so familiar with a package, with a passage, it's hard to step back and try to put ourselves in that historical context. And remember, who was speaking? To whom was he speaking? What was the setting? What was the date? Uh, you know, those types of, of issues. And so uh, we need, it really comes down to where does meaning reside? Does it reside with the text or with the reader? We live in a, a culture where, uh, you know, we, people are uh, espousing uh, what we might call reader response hermeneutics, where meaning resides with the reader. So I get to determine what you mean when you write something or say something instead of letting it reside with uh, the original author. Uh, some people are suggesting that interpretation really comes down to this uh, sort of uh, interpretive dance between the reader and the text. Uh, but we believe, or should believe, that meaning always resides with the text, that the author determines what is meant. Otherwise, uh, communication is impossible. If the listener or reader gets to determine uh, the meaning, then in, communication is impossible. And I've talked about this before, I think, here uh, at Duluth in different contexts. But, I mean, just imagine the confusion. Um, you know, if, uh, if uh, think about the implications for uh, school. Uh, if a student uh, in math class uh, has a question on a quiz, what is 2 plus 2, and that student puts 5, and the teacher marks it wrong, because back in the day they would mark that wrong. Today with, you know, new math, I, uh, who knows what they're going to mark. But let's, just, let's assume the teacher marks that wrong, as they should. Well, then the student gets the paper and says, wait a minute, this isn't right. Uh, you marked this wrong, teacher. And the teacher says, well, yeah, I asked 2 plus 2, and you put 5. And the student simply would have to say, well, I know you said 2 plus 2, but what I thought you meant was 2 plus 3. And I get to determine what you mean. So therefore, my answer was right. Uh, it's complete and utter chaos when the listener gets to determine meaning. So meaning always resides with uh, the words on the page. And uh, that's becoming harder and harder these days, and I think that's just by design. Um, but we're, we're, we're sort of jettisoning words and getting into more uh, symbols. We live in an age of deconstructing language, where words no longer have meaning, where tweets and emojis and emoticons and all of that uh, really have taken the place of substantive conversation. And, and I, I don't know about you, but I've kind of even got sucked into that too. I get a ton of texts and a ton of calls on our 1-800 number and a ton of emails. And you know, sometimes you know, I want to be gracious and I want to respond, but I really don't have the time. So I've learned, and my kids showed me this, but you click a little button on your iPhone and it brings up all these little pictures and you can just click one and it sends that picture and at least you've responded. And half the time, I don't even know what it was. I texted one of my kids who's off at college, uh, happy birthday, and when I clicked send, all these balloons and confetti blew up on my phone. I thought I'd have broken something. I don't know what, what was happening. But uh, that's the world we live in where sometimes even the author <laughs> doesn't know uh, what, uh, what he means. But it, it can, be, can be dangerous in this age of Siri and talk to text. Uh, I had a friend, I think I've shared this in here at some point in the 15 years I've been coming, but a friend of mine's a pastor down in Atlanta, and uh, he tells the extremely humorous but also horrifying uh, story because it came so close to being a disaster. But he was riding in his car with his wife, and he got a text from a widow lady in his church. And the text said, 
what time is the, they had some kind of event that evening at church, what time is the service or whatever it was. And uh, so he responded, since he was driving, talked to text, and uh, he said it's at 6 o'clock or whatever, and he said, looking forward to seeing you tonight, God bless. Well, his wife, fortunately, was watching the phone, I guess it was in a holder, and she saw the way Siri heard what he said, and so before he said send, she said stop, because what Siri had heard when he said looking forward to seeing you tonight, God bless, was looking forward to seeing you tonight, topless. Well, that uh, is something that no pastor wants to say to a widow, so uh, it can be very, very dangerous. So uh, we need to remember original intent. The second careless error is the tendency to search for multiple meanings. The tendency to search for multiple meanings. This sort of relates to the first careless error of original meaning. But, you know, if, if meaning resides in the mind of the reader, then really there can be as many meanings as there are people reading the text. You can have an infinite number of meanings because there's an infinite number of readers. And so this uh, violation, the, the violation of this principle is really seen uh, commonly in what passes as Bible study today, this serendipity uh, approach where uh, people sit around in a circle and you have a facilitator. You know, we don't have Bible study teachers anymore. We have facilitators because a teacher implies there's a place to land. Uh, but uh, postmodern theology is all, you know, signpost and no destination, they've said, right? So everyone goes around the circle and gives their idea, their meaning of the passage, and meanwhile the facilitator applauds all of these incredible meanings, and, uh, and, and they're all sort of validated as if they could all be true. Multiplicity of meanings. And so this is a fundamental principle of hermeneutics, the principle of singularity of meaning. And as I've taught on this, I taught a series recently in, at our home church, on uh, how to read and understand the Bible. And this is one that we got hung up on for quite a while, just getting people to understand how important this is because we've been conditioned to think that the Bible is a mystical book, that it's sort of this goosebump approach to interpretation. And in fact, the more wild-eyed and bizarre the interpretation is, the more uh, you are hailed as a brilliant Bible teacher because you're able to see things uh, that no one else can see in the text which is because they're not there, but uh, that's not what most people think. So I love uh, Babylon B. I get a ton of great uh, material from Babylon B, but I love this little meme. The home Bible study leader asks if anyone else has any blatant heresy that they would like to share <laughs> at, uh, today's, at today's Bible study. Uh, and we've all been there. Amen. Uh, so then the third careless error is the tendency to allegorize the text. Now, in this audience, we certainly understand the technical meaning of allegorizing and that it essentially is the opposite of literal interpretation. So the opposite of literal interpretation is not figurative interpretation. Literal interpretation takes into account the use of figures of speech. Every language uses them. Um, we use figures of speech in English all the time. In fact, I just used one, hyperbole. I don't always speak in figurative language, but I said I did because that's just hyperbole, right? So, uh, of course, the Bible is uh, full of figures of speech, so that doesn't preclude the literal grammatical historical meaning, but allegorizing the text uh, does, and so that's really the opposite of literal interpretation. Allegorizing is the arbitrary assigning of symbolic meaning to a passage that does not emanate from the words on the page. It emanates from the mind of the reader. So covenant theologians are, of course, famous for their allegory. Uh, when the Old Testament emphasizes the national promises to Israel, they read into it the church. Even though nothing in the words on the page would indicate that God's Word is talking about the church there. Of course, the church is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It was a mystery, as Paul says in Ephesians 3. Uh, but they nevertheless allegorize the text in that way. Um, so I think this is a, a good reminder, even though we understand sort of the rules of the game and we get which camp we're in, right? Uh, every now and then, we, all of us, are guilty of slipping back into that allegorical approach. In fact, uh, dispensationalists have, have, have come up with some pretty wild 
allegorical uh, interpretations. Um, but before we get into a couple of those examples, I want to just say one more thing about um, our brothers that are in the, the covenant camp. Um, and this is something I think uh, Dr. Stallard first pointed out to me. I'm sure many others have noticed this, but it was profound to me at the time years ago. And that is that, you know, covenant folks are, they practice literal hermeneutics when it comes to certain portions of the Old Testament, particularly prophetic portions that deal with the first advent of Christ. I mean, because they've happened, so they have no choice but to take them literally. Jesus was literally born in Bethlehem. He was literally born of a virgin, right? Um, but when it comes to prophecies, sometimes even in the same context, in the same passage, that deal with the second coming of Christ, for some reason they shift their hermeneutic. In other words, they're not consistent. They, they, they become inconsistent. And, and they allegorize the text so that Christ is not literally going to return to the earth. He's not literally going to reign in a rebuilt temple. You know, Ezekiel 40 to 48 is one massive metaphor. You know, why, why do they do that? I, I don't understand uh, how they can justify the hermeneutical uh, shift. But we too, at times, in our effort to be creative and our effort to be great homileticians, you know, we sometimes drift into the realm of allegory. So let me just camp out here for a second and give you a few uh, examples. Uh, some of our most popular interpretations that make the rounds today are, are based on this sort of creative allegory rather than the plain, normal, common sense interpretation. Uh, for example, uh, and I don't, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but how many of you have either heard preached or perhaps, in my case, sometimes preached uh, the passage from Genesis on Joseph and Potiphar's wife as teaching something along the lines of uh, how, to, how a young man can avoid adultery or how to avoid sexual sin, right? Um, certainly that's what happens in that narrative, um, but uh, is that really the meaning of the passage? Uh, and frankly, we tend to allegorize the text most often in uh, narrative portions of Scripture and gospel portions of Scripture especially, um, and that because it's so easy to do that, it's so easy to preach, right? I mean, you can just, you're probably already formulating an alliterative outline in your, in your head right now, thinking about Joseph and Potiphar's wife, but is that really what the text means? I mean, when we, when we do something like that, we're essentially taking something that happened in the text and principalizing it, and one of the... Uh, key rules of uh, hermeneutics that I've adapted, uh, 24 rules of hermeneutics, I forget who did it, uh, name escapes me, but I've kind of adapted it through the years and used it in class, is that narratives don't normally teach a doctrine directly. They illustrate doctrine that's taught elsewhere in Scripture. So if you're going to teach on how a young man might avoid adultery, there's certainly plenty of epistolary passages, direct doctrinal passages that speak to that issue. Then you can go back to the narrative, say, in Genesis, and illustrate that. But in, in teaching through uh, the Pentateuch, we need to understand the flow of thought, understand what God, the creator of the universe, is communicating to mankind, uh, have a dispensational sensitivity and a, and, a, and a sensitivity to God's plan for Israel as he introduces Israel there with the unconditional Abrahamic covenant beginning in chapter 12. All of that is, is, is part of it. And when we simply say, Turn with me in your Bibles to this story, and this is going to tell you five principles on how to avoid adultery. We may as well pick anything, any element from that narrative, and turn it into the meaning of that passage, right? We could preach, the same, we could preach from the same passage a message entitled, Why You Should Never Work for an Egyptian, right? I mean, that also happens in the context, right? Uh, and so we do the same thing with a lot of these, uh, of these uh, passages. I can give you lots of examples. I, when I was dean uh, for six years at the College of Biblical Studies, we had a professor one time, a young a man uh, who was uh, teaching in class. And fortunately, there were some uh, bright students in the class who recognized right away some red flags went up, hey, this isn't handling the text correctly. And so they brought it to my attention, and we had to deal with it. But uh, this professor was actually teaching from the Old Testament, the, uh, that the, the temple layout of the temple was actually a symbolic or allegorical representation of a woman's reproductive system with diagrams and all. I'm not kidding. 
I mean, the cherubim and seraphim were like the fallopian tubes, and it was just unbelievable. And it was quite striking, really. I mean, it was just, wow, I never saw that before. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the Bible code. You can really twist and make Scripture uh, say anything uh, that you want it to say. Um, I, I had one student, uh, this is interesting, let me get to the passage, uh, in the triumphal entry there, I just put that on there as a reminder to me, but in Matthew's account, uh, in Matthew 21, uh, here's something I bet you never knew before, all your years of studying the scripture, but a student turned in a sample sermon that said, uh, let's start out in verse 1, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. Now, did you know what really was going on there was that Jesus was teaching the disciples how to be loosed from whatever oppression they were under because they loosed the donkey, right? That's allegory. That's not at all what's going on there, just like in... On the island of Malta, they built a fire because they were cold, and they loosed the donkey because it was tied up, and that's how you bring the donkey over here. You've got to untie it, right? Um, so uh, allegorizing is essentially coming up with meaning, fantastical. It doesn't even have to be fantastical meaning. It can be fairly inane, but that originates in the mind. In other words, nobody else would come up with that other than maybe coincidentally, but certainly not from the words on the page. And sadly, that has become uh, par for the course in interpretation. And not, it's not th that big of an issue in dispensationalists, but it's a cautionary tale because we too can uh, slip into that. And so, in fact, uh, yesterday Tom uh, Stiegel and I were talking and he gave, uh, brought up an old pre-trib research uh, conference uh, message from Dave Larson and uh, gave me the old tape. Uh, and uh, we had to go into a time machine and find a tape player, but once we found a tape player, then I actually listened to it last night, and it was a message that Dave Larson uh, preached at Pre-Trib called Hermeneutical House of Horrors, in which he took to task uh, dispensationalists for some of our more notorious, uh, not just dispensationalists, but he mentioned some, uh, for our notorious uh, examples of allegorizing. So I've been running into some of these here Recently, I've been doing a ton of uh, speaking at pr prophecy conferences because of my last two books, or one that comes out in three weeks and the one that came out in March on Spirit of the Antichrist. And frequently I find myself sharing the platform with or having discussions with people that hold some of these views, such as the, the 6,000-year human history view, that uh, God, you know, he, he, we're in the final stages, that uh, it's a 7,000-year program of God, and that the thousand-year millennium is the last seven, last thousand years, so the church age must only be 2,000 years, and so here we are. We're going to have the rapture. In fact, I had tons of people emailing me, and maybe you did too, about uh, the fact that the rapture was going to happen September 25th through the 28th in conjunction with the Feast of Trumpets. And um, so I wish it would have happened, and it could have happened, because I believe in the doctrine of imminency. It certainly could have happened. Uh, but uh, there are many, dis I'm talking about dispensational teachers out there who really, really believe that. Send out newsletters and, and so forth. Um, you know, you get into, uh, you know, the blood moons and people like Jonathan Kahn with the Shemitahs and this is, a, you know, a Psalm 83 war. Psalm 83 is in no way prophetic. Just look at the text. Uh, and yet people do this sort of newspaper exegesis which really amounts to allegorizing the text. And anytime you arrive at meaning... It doesn't originate with and emanate from the text. That's allegorizing. Um, I have another friend who's just convinced that Babylon, that the United States is Babylon. And he's got some pretty interesting passages that he can correlate to present-day realities in this country. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's an accurate uh, interpretation. Uh, we all remember all of the hubbub surrounding Y2K, and there were a lot of dispensational Bible teachers who jumped on that bandwagon and, and used the text, or I should say misused the text, to support their, uh, their view. So we see this uh, uh, most notably, for example, and again, now we're getting down, possibly even stepping on some toes here, but many dispensationalists, including people like uh, Pente J. Dwight Pentecost, who I had for Daniel and Revelation Dallas Seminary, will teach uh, the allegorical view of the churches in Revelation, seeing a panoramic view of church history in Revelation 2 and 3. But does that come from the text? 
Is it interesting? Sure. Is it creative? Yeah. Is it you know uncanny, the similarities? Perhaps. But is that what the text says? Uh, and so uh, this has been something that we have not been immune to, and I, can, I think that's the, uh, the warning. Uh, we need to remember what does the text say we want to interpret the Bible accurately. As that great theologian Rush Limbaugh once said, words mean things. Words mean things. They have real meaning, not allegorized meaning. And, you know, it preaches well. It's so easy to preach allegorically because, again, people are mouths agape, wide-eyed. Wow, that's fascinating. You know, you're brilliant, right? Um, but... Uh, we need to remember that allegorizing is uh, like the famous Amish Airlines. I'm, I'm sure you've seen this. It'll give you quite a thrill, but it's really not going to get you anywhere. And many a Bible teacher has crashed and burned by not handling the Word of God correctly. Uh, number four uh, is ignoring the immediate context of the passage, and you'd be surprised how much uh, this happens. I've had it happen many times in my own study and teaching. One of the things I really love and appreciate about my uh, association with Duluth over the past uh, 15 or so years are all those times when we come together and, and stay up late at night talking with Bibles on our laps and just iron sharpening iron and encouraging. And, and, and so often, you know, when I expand the focus and look at the surrounding context, I realize, oh yeah, I missed that something I missed, or I should have seen that, or I should have connected these dots, right? Uh, and so we need to remember the uh, concentric circles of context. Uh, it starts with a smaller uh, focus and expands outward. And this is a careless error that has serious theological implications. In fact, uh, the tendency of, of some dispensationalists like John MacArthur to overlook contextual clues in the Gospels and Acts has led to a false understanding of the doctrine of salvation by grace. They, the merging of discipleship and salvation. Right? Now, I don't mean to sound in any way condescending to John MacArthur. He's a great Bible scholar, and, and, and that's fine. I'm not being gratuitously critical. But we believe that he is missing the mark when he takes gospel passages that are clearly speaking to believers about discipleship and makes those requirements of salvation and merges those things into this definition of faith, you know, this, this idea of fiducia, you know, as the reformer said, has to be part of faith. Uh, and I, I don't understand uh, how he doesn't get that, honestly, or I'm using him as a example for all uh, Calvinists uh, in their handling of the Gospels. Uh, I mean, how do you go to John 15 in the upper room, which is Jesus and 11 believers, because Judas has already left by that point, and Jesus is commanding them to abide in Him, that is, meno, to, to remain in close fellowship with Him so they can bear fruit and, and, and so forth. And how do you take away from that passage that Jesus is telling these 11 believers how to get saved? That's exactly what uh, MacArthur does with, in his commentary on John. That abiding in Christ means get saved. This is how you get saved, right? So this is a, this is a careless error, one that you, know, you might think, wow, this is pretty basic stuff, right? Talk about 2 plus 2, right? I realize I'm in a room full of mathematicians and, and we're talking pretty basic stuff here, but it has some pretty serious... So it's helpful to remember these uh, concentric circles of context. I'm sure you all have use this probably in your own teaching, but it starts with a word and you do some word studies and then expand out to the sentence and then the paragraph and then the book of the Bible and then the author's other writings. How else does Paul use this word and, and you know, what is his common uh, way of using this particular word or phrase? Then you expand out to the in, entire Testament and then, of course, the whole Bible. And uh, the smaller the passage being studied, the greater the chance of error in interpretation. And so there are several examples of this that uh, come to mind. Uh, for example, um, you know, people who take passages like 2 Chronicles 7.14, rip them out of context and apply them, uh, especially in a sort of a, a view of American exceptionalism and making America uh, some type of uh, godly country. 
Uh, Jeremiah 29.11 is the quintessential example. We've all used this example. I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord, and so forth. Um, um, what's, the, uh, what's the context? He's talking about Israel in the context of the Babylonian captivity and the reminder that God's covenant promises to, to her are absolutely guaranteed, unconditional. And that though things may look bad, someday... He's going to fulfill them. He goes on to say, as long as there's a sun and moon in the heavens, you know, I'm going to fulfill this promise. So, I mean, how do you reconcile that with the notion that somehow God's kingdom promises to Israel have been abrogated and are now spiritualized and we're living in the kingdom today and Christ is reigning spiritually and metaphorically in our hearts? Because the last time I looked, uh, you know, when they're not uh, performing... Uh, solar radiation management and other geoengineering techniques, I can actually see the, the stars and the sun and the moon, right? If God's word is true, that means the kingdom is still coming. Where uh, two or three are gathered in my name, Matthew 18. Psalm 46 is one that uh, sometimes even dispensationalists uh, miss, but this uh, famous uh, psalm where we read, uh, let's see here. Be still and know that I am God, but this is uh, uh, the sons of Korah and a short psalm, but he comes down and concludes with, uh, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And we often love to cite that verse in the sense of, well, just calm down, be quiet, you know, remember God is God. What's the context? Well, in the context, it's about war and uh, the Lord of hosts being with us. The nations are raging and there's this battle brewing and God, verse 9, is the one who makes wars cease to the end of the earth. So be still. Here's where doing the little word studies helps with the context, but it's literally stop striving, stop conducting international you know, combat. And let God be God. Uh, here's another one, Isaiah 55, uh, that I still sometimes quote because I grew up using this phrase. I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home, and uh, my grandfather was a preacher. My parents were are godly Christians. My dad's 80 now. My mom's 78, and they're still walking with the Lord. They watch our live streams. Every conference I do, they watch the live streams. And um, so, you know, a lot of... Uh, proper handling of Scripture really comes down to sort of being willing to be intellectually honest and break free of some of the colloquialisms we've kind of latched onto uh, through the years. Uh, but here's Isaiah 55 where he says in verses 8 and 9, uh, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher, or so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, you know, if you're like me, you know, you grew up sort of thinking, well, that just means, um, you know, uh, God's, uh, you know, eternal and sovereign, and we don't always understand our ways, but we have to just trust Him. But again, what's the context? Well, if you, uh, if you look at the context, he says, go back to verse 8, for my thoughts are not, uh, no, go back to verse uh, 7, excuse me, uh, let the wicked forsake his way and the righteous his thoughts. Why? Because my thoughts are not your thoughts. He's talking about behavior. He's talking about sinfulness. He's saying when you're sinning, you're not in accordance with my standard. Right? It has nothing to do with this concept of God uh, having a perspective that we don't have. Now, the Bible certainly teaches that, and that's often the case with uh, taking passages out of context where uh, it's not so much that we arrive at a wrong conclusion theologically, we just have the wrong passage to support that text. So, you know, obviously the Bible teaches that concept. If you go to Romans 11, it's at least my favorite place, and, and Paul uh, quotes from a different passage in Isaiah here, but at the end of chapter 11 in Romans, he says, Oh, the depth and the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Certainly that's true, but when he's talking about my thoughts are not your thoughts, he's talking about you're not behaving properly. That's what he's saying. So we could go on, but these are other examples. The judge not lest you be judged, the um, uh, sheep and wolves clothing, and some of those are turned on their head 
the way they're commonly applied uh, from the contextual meaning. Number five is similar, and that is proof texting to make a point. Um, you know, proof texting is essentially uh, taking a passage out of context, but doing so to make it support whatever principle you're trying uh, to make. Uh, all you really need uh, to prove text is a good concordance and a variety of English translations, and you can pretty much say the, make the Bible say anything you want, right? Just ask Rick Warren. Um, so the list of uh, uh, the, 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 uh, things that, the things that I learned in seminary uh, is lengthy. I mean, I, I, God used it in a powerful way in my life, but one of the things that uh, Dr. Stallard that still reverberates in my head, besides his uh, Bama jokes, uh, is, uh, and Bear Bryant comments, quotes, uh, but one of the things that still reverberates in my head is the importance of making sure that every time you cite a reference, you know how we'll, when we're, and I do a lot of writing, we just came out with our 11th book, and so it's common in Christian uh, writing, nonfiction, to, uh, you know, theological writing, to make a statement, and then you put some passage references in parentheses, as if to say, this isn't me saying it, it's God saying it, right? Well, how often do you, when you read books that do that, how often do you take the time to look up all those verses? Probably not very often, because we're sort of conditioned to think, well, of course, that passage must support the premise, so I'm just going to concede the point, and we read on. For one thing, it's in parenthesis. We're kind of conditioned to skip parentheses. Um, but Dr. Stallard really helped me, uh, when I was writing my dissertation, uh, drill down on the fact, don't quote a passage unless you can draw a direct line of connection, and it truly makes the point that you're trying to make. So proof texting is taking a verse out of context uh, to support a spiritual principle. So we see this all the time with bumper stickers and uh, uh, posters. You know, here's one with the Jeremiah 2911. Um, you know, I wonder if the person who has this uh, poster on their wall really understands that this is about a future for national Israel. Maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe he's talking about Israel's journey there. I don't know. But it's most likely an example of uh, proof texting. And there's really two dangers when we proof text. And this is what I really want you to think about. Number one, of course, if the principle that you're espousing isn't really taught by that reference, then you could be espousing a wrong principle. I mean, like I said, sometimes it's a no harm, no foul idea because... For example, is it certainly true from God's Word that God has plans for us as individual human beings? Yes, we could make that case pretty clearly in Scripture. Is that what Jeremiah 29, 11 is saying? Not at all. So sometimes it's a no harm, no foul, but the first danger is sometimes there is harm because sometimes the principle that we're espousing isn't taught by that reference or anywhere else. So we've got an erroneous interpretation. But a second danger, and more to the point, is... Uh, that you're missing out on what the text actually does say. I mean, think about the, the, the application and the powerful principle behind Jeremiah 29.11. It teaches us that our God is a covenant-keeping God. It teaches us that he's, His promises to Israel are guaranteed. It teaches us there's a future for national Israel. It teaches us so many things that when we rip that verse out of context and proof text with it, we're missing out on the real meaning of the passage. And then number six is the failure to distinguish between meaning and significance. The failure to distinguish between meaning and significance. Um, as we mentioned, the principle of singularity of meaning is critical. One passage, one meaning. Uh, if two Bible teachers come to the same passage and come away with two different meanings, either one's right and one's wrong, or possibly they're both wrong, but they cannot both be right. Uh, and that's where we need to, I think, do a better job of using the phrase significance instead of meaning. So when we say, well, what does that passage mean to you? When people ask me that, I, I, I often will say, well, it means the same thing to me as it means to you because there's only one meaning. What they're really asking is, how, how, what's the significance of that? How do you apply that passage? So, for example, in, in, uh, in my life, uh, most of my life since I was in the seventh grade, uh, with seasons of exception, but by and large, with some degree of consistency my entire life, I've read a proverb a day. I learned it at Word of Life Bible Camp with Jack Wurtzen when I was a junior high student, went to basketball camp there, met uh, Julius Irving 
at that summer camp. It was a big thrill of my life. But anyway, that's where I learned how to read a proverb a day and have a quiet time with a little word of life quiet time uh, journals. But uh, So if you look through my Bibles uh, you know, through the years uh, and you read through Proverbs, you'll see little notes and dates beside different Proverbs because on that particular day, the Lord used that particular proverb to really you know, convict me of something, or I was able to apply it in a certain way in my life. But that doesn't mean that over the years that proverb has had dozens of meanings. It, it, it's the difference between meaning and significance, right? One meaning uh, in an infinite number of applications or uh, significance. So, uh, you know, again, you go back to Jeremiah 29.11, the meaning is that God has a future for Israel. He's not forsaken His promises. They're unconditional. Now, what's the significance? Well, you know, I could take all kinds of applications away from that, that God can be trusted, that God's a covenant-keeping God, that God loves Israel. You know, there's lots of applications, right? Uh, I had uh, Dr., the late uh, Dr. Stanley Toussaint, another, for most of uh, my uh, Acts and uh, uh, Pauline epistles. Um, by the way, speaking of Pauline epistles, Dr. Toussaint's the one that once told me when I raised my hand and asked a question in class about the Pauline epistles, he said, young man, Pauline is my aunt. This letter is a Pauline epistle. So anyway, um, uh, it's just something, no, no extra charge for that, but it just came to my mind as I was thinking about Toussaint. Uh, but one, one of the things I loved about his classes is his, he would teach through the historical narrative of Acts. He would always, at the end of each class, have a list of applications. Again, doing just what we said we shouldn't do with allegorizing narratives like we tend to do. He t- this is what it says. This is what it means. Here's the flow of thought. This is what happened. It doesn't mean this is what's always supposed to happen. Narratives don't always have a moral point. They're just telling us what happened under the inspiration of the Spirit. But we can apply it. We can sort of make some observations and have some applications. And I always loved those, uh, those uh, sessions. So we need to keep that distinction in mind. And then finally... Uh, we need to, uh, one of the careless errors is that we forget what it's all about. That's an occupational hazard uh, because we teach the Word of God for a living. I, I've heard when we went around the room, we've got a lot of um, academic um, teacher professors here. We've got Bible teachers. We've got pastors, uh, missionaries, different folks. But all of us uh, that teach the Word of God in some capacity can easily fall into the trap of doing it as a job and, and forgetting what it's all about. And so one of the things that I learned uh, in seminary with uh, Dr. Staller was the five steps in the Bible study process, the first three of which are the development phase of theology, and then the final two are the implementation phase. But it starts with the Bible. Uh, this is dealing with our hermeneutic here, the literal grammatical historical context. Funny how many times Bible study these days in the general evangelical public doesn't begin with the Bible. It begins with a shrink-wrap workbook of some kind. But it starts with the Bible, handling it correctly in the proper hermeneutic as we've been talking about. Then it moves to that step two. If you remember that first chart that I showed of how we misinterpret the Bible, there were really two steps, proper method and then theological synthesis, comparing cross-referencing. That's step two, uh, you know, remembering the analogy of faith that Scripture best interprets itself. And then by the time you get to step three, this is where you formulated your doctrinal statement and essentially you're answering the question, what does the Bible teach about? And then you, you fill it in. And this is not a, uh, a static process. This is essentially the process that we go through our entire lives until Jesus comes. And to the extent that we're able to continually work through the text and stay immersed in the text and read it again and again, then we're going to be able to recognize times when we've kind of gotten off base or connected dots that couldn't have connected and that we shouldn't have connected and, and really continue to hone our understanding. We won't ultimately arrive at a perfect understanding of all there is to understand about God's Word, this side of glory. No one can say, I've studied the Bible from cover to cover, I've written a sermon on every passage of Scripture, so I've arrived and I'm just going to sit back on my laurels and every time I preach a passage, I just pull out my conclusion. I hope every time you're preaching, even though you may have preached the same passage dozens of times, that you're starting with the text. Not in some mystical way. That's not proper hermeneutics where we say, okay, Lord, reveal to me if I've missed anything, but just dealing with the text. And over the years, uh, 
You know, 30 uh, started in some type of form of paid capacity ministry in 87, so whatever that is, 35 years or so. Uh, I've developed uh, different folders. It used to be physical file folders. Now it's all digital. Uh, where I'll, it'll say, for example, um, you know, my study on James. And then you'll find a folder that says, study on James New. <laughs> because as I studied it through the years, I realized, you know what, I was a little off on that. And so, you know, I want to make, you know, this is my revised understanding. See, theologians never change their view. We just revise it. That's the <laughs> import, important distinction. Um, but uh, it's a process of constantly going through it. So uh, by the time you get to step three, you've developed your conclusions. So, you know, we start with, say, Romans. What, what does the Bible teach about salvation and justification by faith? We compare other scripture and begin to formulate a comprehensive soteriology. And we've developed our, uh, our conclusions. But then that doesn't stop there. If you stop there, you're, you haven't, you're only three-fifths of the way through the process. You've got to go the next step, which is the implementation phase. Step four is evaluating uh, the world's truth claims through the lens of the Bible. Sorry, the formatting's off a little bit there. Uh, but basically, we take our conclusions and we say, okay, you know, I believe salvation is a free gift by grace through faith, but the world is saying this, or this teacher is saying this, or this denomination is saying this. So we either reject or accept, validate or invalidate the world's truth claims. But the final step is to apply it to your life because the goal of Bible study is a changed life. The goal of Bible study is a changed life. So this is the development phase and this is the implementation uh, phase. You could you know, come up with the same steps. By the way, nothing magical about the five steps. It's just a good paradigm that I think Doc Stallard has uh, you know, helped me think through and, and teaches that kind of makes sense to me. This flow, the process. You could do the same thing with areas of theology. It starts with biblical theology, systematic theology, which is you know, cross-referencing, doctrinal theology, what are your conclusions, what's your doctrinal statement, then comparative theology, what do these other groups say, and finally applied theology. But the goal of Bible study is a, <clears throat> a changed life. And sadly, you know, the world is, is filled today, even I would say, sadly, in our dispensational camp, with a biblically brilliant but morally bankrupt people. I remember uh, when I was teaching full-time at a school, we had a professor who had taught there for 28 years, been the chairman of the theology department, um, had a radio show, pastored a large church, um, would teach in the pulpit and in the classroom right down the line here, literal, grammatical, historical, comparing Scripture with Scripture, coming up with conclusions. Um, I heard him speak on multiple occasions about uh, the, what the Bible teaches about sexual purity and adultery and those types of things. And yet, come to find out, for 10 years, he was involved in an illicit affair with his secretary. So that, that's not a theologian, and that's certainly not a Bible student. That's a biblically brilliant but morally bankrupt person. So if it's not changing your life, uh, what's the point? And I would add, since we're in a room of pastors and Bible teachers, that not only is the goal of Bible study a changed life, the goal of teaching and preaching the Bible is exhortational, not merely informational. Um, you know, just as evangelism is not merely telling people about Jesus and His work, but calling on them to respond in faith, likewise, expositional teaching isn't just presenting facts and getting people to dutifully take notes. It's calling on people to respond. What I call exhortational teaching and preaching. No one particular style. I, I remember uh, learning early on, I had a professor that reminded students, look, uh, this isn't my first time in seminary, every preacher is a patented edition of one. So don't try to be, you know, Tony Evans, or don't try to be Tom Stegall, or, you know, don't, Try to be, certainly don't try to be Joel Osteen for a variety of reasons. Um, but be you. Be transparent. Be sincere. Be who you are. Be true to the text. You know, use proper hermeneutics and all of those things we just talked about. But be real. But, uh, so there's, you know, there's no one style. But I think one thing that should transcend all styles is the call to action. Some type of exhortational 
approach. Your, your messages and lessons should end with some exhortation. Don't, don't ever let the clock be your conclusion. Okay. Oh, well, we're out of time, so we'll pick up with the 32 references to the Levitical laws in Pauline literature next week. You know, that's not good teaching. What do you do with this information? I understand the Holy Spirit obviously uses the Word of God to convict and lead and guide and all of that, but as a communicators of the Word of God, we want to challenge people to, uh, you know, to, uh, to do something with this. So those are uh, seven careless errors, nothing that you didn't already know, but hopefully it's a reminder uh, of how to apply uh, some of these things more consistently. Um, before I close, and I'll close in prayer in a moment, I just want to mention, because it's really something I'm passionate about right now, uh, and that is uh, the subject matter of my two-volume set, Spirit of the Antichrist. If you are not talking about the things in Volume 1, which came out in March, uh, I did not have those with me last time. It had not come out yet. I've got some now. Uh, or the one that comes out in two, three weeks, and that is uh, Volume 2. Uh, you can go to spiritofantichrist.org and see a sneak peek at both of them. You can read the preface, the tables of contents, see the material that I'm talking about uh, in there. But if you're not talking about these things at such a time as this, I, I believe that's a mistake. And I, I think this is a pivotal time in human history, in church history, and uh, we need to be uh, addressing these issues that are rapidly unfolding before our eyes. So I encourage you to stop by the Not By Works table. It's all I brought because I flew, so I just brought a few of those, uh, those books. But let me lead us in prayer, and then I'll turn it back over to Tom. Father, thank you for uh, just the chance to be together at this uh, conference, to fellowship, to be fed. So often we spend our uh, days uh, teaching others and building into the lives of others and shepherding others. And Lord, it's great to be able to just allow your word to nourish us. And I just pray that you would... Uh, convict us where we need convicting, uh, gen be gentle in your rebukes, and help us to be uh, men and women of God that are faithful uh, to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name.